Welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from bearmarriage.com, where we like to talk about healthy, evidence-based biblical advice for your sex life and your marriage. And I am joined today by my daughter, Rebecca Lindenbach. Hello. And we are in the middle of a series on the blog at bearmarriage.com on how to get out of the pit you may have dug for yourself in your sex life when things are really, really, really lousy. Yes. And you want to emerge from it because nobody wants a lousy sex life. Exactly. We all want to feel connected. Yes. But what do we do when there's so much pain and so much hurt and just so much, oh, feeling like you're never going to get better? Mm-hmm. And so that's what I want to address today. Before we get started, a special shout out, as always, to our wonderful patrons mm-hmm. who allow us to do this work um, because of their help. They really helped fund um, last year when we wrote She Deserves yeah. Better, helped us fund all their, their research and Joanna's um, stats for that. That book is coming out in April. Yep. It's um, it's Raising Girls to Resist Toxic Teachings About Self-Sex and Speaking Up. Is that right? I think something like that. Something like we that. We can never... <laughs> remember our subtitles. <laughs> yes, but she deserves better. And um, the patron money is also going to support two other big um, marriage surveys we're doing mm-hmm. um, in this next coming year and all kinds of really cool things. So we're very grateful to that money that is just letting us continue this work. So if you want to support us for as little as $5 a month, um, you can do that at patreon.com slash marriage and get access to our Facebook group. Um, it's a wonderful place to hang mm-hmm. out, our unfiltered podcasts, some merch and more. So go take a look there. Speaking of merch, we have some exclusive merch for our patrons, but we also have some merch that you guys can get. And as the holiday season is nearing, um, is is creeping up, um, we have some great stuff that you can think about for stocking stuffers, some mugs, some just fun conversation starters, mm-hmm. our love and respect mug. Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> healthy people For anyone need, who gets it. <laughs> because healthy people need both. Um, all our cool stuff, put turning biblical womanhood on its head and more. So we will put the link to that. If you go to bearmarriage.com and click on the store, you will find our merch and we'll put a link in the podcast notes there. So thank you for that. Okay. Last week, we were looking at the four point plan Mm -hmm. on how to get over these terrible ruts and the pits that we dig ourselves into. How how to undo the damage that you may have caused for years. Exactly. And so first of all, it comes to redefining sex, understanding Mm -hmm. that it's not a commodity. It isn't something that she gives and he takes Mm -hmm. or that he's entitled to. It is the natural culmination of the intimacy and the relationship that you already share. Mm -hmm. So we need to see it that way. And then it comes safety. Where you feel safe, you feel intimate, and from there, affection and sex can then bloom. But we have to get these pieces in place first. So we we covered safety last week. We covered redefining sex last week. What I want to talk about today is the phenomenon where you could really want to get better, but you could just feel like it just can't happen. Mm-hmm. because, you know, maybe you've married 17 years and you've never had an orgasm. Yep. Or else then the other side of it where you just don't want to get better anymore. Yeah. And you don't know how to want to get better. Yeah. 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 You just hate it. You just hate sex. You don't think it's for you. Yeah. For whatever reason. And it's just become a mess. Yeah. Mm. And when we were talking about the concept for this podcast, I immediately piped up, oh, that's just learned helplessness and learned hopelessness. Right. We want to talk about this concept to explain how we can get to a point where we can know that something is good 
but mm-hmm. just completely feel apathetic towards it. Yeah, and just not just not have any energy, mm-hmm. any emotional bandwidth yeah. to even try to get better. Well, let's explain it on that great note. So there's been a whole series of experiments that were done around the 60s where yes. they pretty much just did horrible things to dogs to see how they'd respond. Yes, yeah, so don't worry. These are not currently no. being done in universities today. No, and there are a bunch <laughs> of different iterations of this experiment, but the main one that I learned about um, that were taught in every single psychology class. Yeah, I was taught about this one too, so yes. I remember it too. Is that what they did is they would have these dogs in the cage. They'd sound off a bell or put a, flash up a light or something like that. And then a couple seconds later, the dogs get shocked. Right. Through like the bottom of the cage through the, yeah. or through mm-hmm. a harness or a collar or something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the dogs bell or light and then a couple seconds later, zap. Mm-hmm. So what would happen is the dogs started to realize, ooh, that bell does not bring good news. They would freak out when the bell happens. They'd mm-hmm. run around. They'd try to do anything they could to get the to get the shock to not happen. They'd bark. They'd cry. They'd whine. They'd scream. They'd be so scared. And then the shock would happen and they would just kind of then wait until the bell happened again. And it was just this anxious mess right. as these poor dogs We're are being in tortured. This, they're yes. being absolutely tortured. Yes. Okay. Yes. Like they're in this horrible little situation. They can't get out of it. And nothing they do is really making it stop. Right. Eventually what happens, which is interesting, is the first two, th- two interesting things happen. Mm-hmm. First of all, the dogs start reacting to the warning sign mm-hmm. the same way they react to the shock. Right. So the warning sign starts having just as much of a psychological influence over the dogs as the actual shock itself. Right. So, and this is called classic conditioning. It's really common. You know, mm-hmm. same, same, we, we, this happens in humans all the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and remember this because I'm going to come back to this in a minute in the yeah. podcast when we talk about how this relates to sex. Mm-hmm. But keep yeah, going. Yeah, we are. But mm-hmm. then the other thing that was interesting is after that had happened, after they started reacting to the bell, they kept going for longer and longer and the dogs stopped reacting at all. A lot mm-hmm. of them just lay down and yeah. they just accepted that the shocks were coming and there was nothing they could do about it. Yeah, they just gave up. This was called learned helplessness yes (laughs) this is what seligman and colleagues tend to call learned helplessness which you have learned there's nothing you can do and there's nothing you can do to stop it and so you just give in Mm -hmm. now what's interesting is that they did like a a follow-up experiment to this where they Mm -hmm. had a different setup they had a cage that had like a little divider in between that was easily low enough for dogs to step over like not even having to jump it's just just so that there's clearly two different halves of a cage Mm-hmm. They had some dogs that had been put through this first torture chamber mm-hmm. and some dogs that were fresh. Okay. Right. Same thing. Buzzer, zap. But the zap only happened on the side of the cage that the dogs were in. Right. And so all the fresh dogs saw that, oh, that's not great. And they jumped over to the other side. And then the yes. bell came, they zapped, and they didn't get anything. So like, okay, this is the safe part. Yeah. And that they just learned. They figured it out. They didn't get zapped. Right. The dogs who had already learned helplessness mm-hmm. didn't even try, even when their envir- environment changed. So the dogs that had learned helplessness did not try to walk over, even when they now had an escape route. Right. So they didn't say, hey, this is new. Maybe there's hope. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can escape this time. No, their learned helplessness had turned into learned hopelessness Mm. and that's why we talk about the learned helplessness and learned hopelessness as two different things learned helplessness is i can't do anything in my situation that's ever going to change anything so i might as well not even try learned hopelessness is there's never an escape no matter what and so even when your situation changes Mm. you still just keep giving up 
Right. And how did they get the dogs to eventually escape? I think this yeah. is really interesting. So they had to actually physically move the dogs. Yeah. So they had to like take their little legs, walk them over the barricades, yeah. get them onto the safe side, and then allow the buzzer and the zap to go a couple of times while the dogs were safe. Right. So the dogs had to be physically forced to move. Mm-hmm. Like they weren't doing it on their own. Yeah. And that's when they realized it was safe was when they saw the buzzer go and it stopped being paired with the shock. Right. Right. That's when they started to realize that they were safe. But it took a long time. It took a long time and someone had to physically make them do it. Right. Like they're the dogs were not helping. The dogs just were going limp. Like it was it's it is truly if you're really into animal rights, I maybe not look into this one too much. (laughs) But it's incredibly interesting. It's one of my favorite experiments. Yeah, in terms Mm -hmm. of what we learned. In terms of in terms of in terms of interest. As a dog owner, you would never want Winston. As a person who is interested in psychology research, I find it incredibly interesting. Okay, here's another ex- another example yes. of a, a learned helplessness experiment they did recently, <laughs> which did pass ethics guidelines. Well, this one's totally fine, yeah. Yeah, which is, I think it's quite funny. So it was a classroom setting, mm-hmm. and they divided the classroom into two groups, but they didn't tell them that they were divided into two groups. Yeah. And they gave the kids, every kid got a set of three words. Mm-hmm. Now, group one and group two got, got different sets of words. But the goal was to to create um, an anagram. Mm-hmm. So the word, for instance, um, one of the words would was bat, mm-hmm. and and so you were told try to think of another word that uses the same letters as the word you've got. Yeah, just tab. Right, right? and the, and the kids were told as soon as you see a word, as soon as you can think of a word that uses all the letters, put your hand up. Mm-hmm. Now the kids thought that they all had the same lists. Yes. But they did not. No. (laughs) So for instance, for word one, Mm -hmm. half of the class had bat. Yeah. But the other half of the class had the word world. (laughs) Like W-H-I-R-L. So I want you to picture this, okay? So the kids look at their papers and the teacher says, as soon as you can think of the word, put your hand up. And almost immediately, half the kids' hands go up. Yeah, and then the other half of the classroom, and this is on YouTube, you can look it up. We'll put a link in the podcast. Mm-hmm. It's really quite funny. The other half of the kids are looking. Like, and what? Everyone's the... And all these hands are up, and they're looking at their word, and they cannot think of it. And then immediately the teachers go, okay, great, let's move on to the next one. Yeah. <laughs> okay? So the next word that half of the kids had was the word lemon. Yeah. Okay, so that like is... melon. Melon, yeah. there you go. Okay, the other half of the group, they had the word slapstick (laughs) okay so same thing happens immediately half the kids hands shoot right up the other half is still just like what the heck is happening yeah do not understand at all then we come to the third word now here's what's interesting for the third word both groups had the same word yeah okay and the word was cinerama yeah now, the funny thing was, I actually had to think about this, but I got it fairly quickly. Yeah. You did it. <laughs> no. I, well, okay. We looked at it for all of five seconds, and I I was just like, I don't know, because I'm usually very good at word scrambles yes. and these kinds of it's things. It's the word American. American, but trust the one who's just fully Canadian and not at all American to yeah. not get that one. So, what? but what happened here was that the group that it had Tab and Melon... Mm-hmm. Or lemon or bad, whatever, whatever it was. You know, they they did put their hands up mm-hmm. pretty quickly. It took them and a little longer. It took them longer. But they did it. But a greater proportion of group one mm-hmm. put their hands up than group two. Yeah. And what they're thinking is that group two just learned the lesson 
I'm not good at this. Yeah. I'm not good at anagrams. Yeah. These just aren't for me. These are too hard. This isn't my thing. And the thing that I remember um, seeing is that um, for the for the the group who had the actual possible words, like the ones where it was possible to do this for, the first two were incredibly easy, and the third one is actually quite difficult. Yeah, and so both of them had the same level of difficulty on the last word, but because they had bolstered their um, excitement and mm-hmm. their feelings of competency, mm-hmm. they were willing to work through it. Whereas the other ones were the other kids were not less competent. No, they no. were at the beginning of the assignment. They were not. They were in the exact same situation. Yeah. That's yeah. learned helplessness. Yeah. So anyway, it's a really it's a really fun video to watch. It's it's a good one to talk to your kids about, actually, mm-hmm. like just from a totally psychological standpoint. And, you know, what does it mean if you're in the situation where you think you're not good at something? Exactly. And how can that affect you? And so how can we overcome this? So it's a fun video. <laughs> it's really quite quick. Yes. And this did pass ethics review. So so you can go take a look at that. But this concept of learned helplessness I think really can apply to our sex lives Mm -hmm. because so many of us feel like, well, sex just isn't for me. It'll never be for me. It's never worked. And it has these, and especially like, okay, there's, there's, there's one group of people to whom um, maybe you've got the best spouse in the world, but you just can't reach orgasm. Yeah. You've tried all this stuff. You think you've done everything you can. You can't reach orgasm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so sex becomes frustrating. It becomes resentful. Mm -hmm. You become bitter about it because this isn't working. Because I'm a failure. Uh, Yeah. All these horrible things. And every single time you have sex, that happens. Yeah. It it reinforces that idea. I am broken. Everybody else is enjoying this except for me. You might start to think, why is he making me do this? Mm -hmm. You know, like, why is this easier for him than it is for me? This isn't fair. All those kinds of things, Mm -hmm. which just makes sex really, really unpleasant. Yeah. Now we do have an orgasm course for those where the Mm -hmm. problem really is just orgasm. It isn't like relationship and things like that. So you can, you can check that out. We will put a link in the podcast notes. But then there's the other group too, where um, it isn't only that sex doesn't feel good, or maybe sex actually does feel good, Mm -hmm. but it just has so many negative repercussions. Like we were talking about last week, how it makes you feel, it makes you feel dirty. It makes you feel used. Um, I think it was 18% of our respondents uh, in the, in the great sex rescue survey that we did. um, They said their most, that their, that their biggest uh, feeling after sex Mm -hmm. was, was negative in some way, like feeling used, et cetera. Um, so if that's you, now I want you to I want you to think about the dogs for a minute. Mm-hmm. How at some point even the bell, yeah, they react to even the bell. Yep. Because when you know that something is coming mm-hmm. that is going to make you feel used. Yeah. You're going to want to avoid that. Yeah. And anything that reminds you of that mm-hmm. is going to cause almost a trauma response, like a fight or flight or freeze or something. Like you're, you're, no, you're going to not want it to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the reasons why so many women react, like they jump if their husbands touch them or try well, to kiss them. Because I also think that for, there's, there's that level where it's like the sex itself can be the bell, but the, the touches or the, uh, or even the bids to go for a date night or to yes, do things yeah, or this is what I'm literally saying. anything like, where if sex itself is not pleasant for you, mm-hmm. Your brain, we are, as human beings, we are amazing statistical learners. That is literally like the number one way that we learn is in infancy, statistical learning. We learn when mummy has spoon in hand, 
I am likely to have have food in mouth, right? <laughs> yes. And so if I like, like we yeah. we learn things that are in in this just likelihood. If A, then B is pretty mm-hmm. much how our brains work. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is why when you don't give kids um, stability and consistency, it's much harder for kids to learn things and to and develop in other areas. Exactly. Yes. There's there's lots of complicated stuff there. But but in mm-hmm. essence, we're incredible statistical learners, and so often our bodies and our subconscious subconscious minds learn and pick up on things that we in our conscious minds don't even get. So you have these women where they've been having sex for like 10 years. They've Mm -hmm. had no orgasms or maybe very, very few or pleasure is very fleeting if it happens. They're starting to feel really resentful. They often feel quite used after sex. They've got the obligation sex message blaring in their head. And so sex feels more like a duty than it does like a fun activity. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of negative stuff there. And then they start to wonder, why don't I enjoy kissing anymore? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why do I always flinch when he hugs me when I'm doing dishes, right? Yeah. Like, why, why do I find myself panicky if he takes my hand while we're watching a movie? Why do, why do I want to go for dates with him in my mind, but then when he says, hey, we should have a night together, I immediately just start feeling, ugh, not again. Yeah. Like, even, wh- why is this happening? And this is all happening on the subconscious level. Because you're a dog and the bell has just rung. Exactly. <laughs> it's that, you know, sex is coming, right? Because often we, in our conscious minds, we can't put two and two together, but our subconscious put it together. When he acts like this, sex is likely to happen. Yeah. Or he is likely to ask for sex. Mm-hmm. And so it is good, I think, to listen to what is your body saying mm-hmm. and figuring out, okay, what is this bell ringing? <laughs> what is this bell warning me about? Yes. What is my body not wanting? What does it mean to be a biblical woman? Does it mean being gentle, quiet, and meek? Well, what if being a biblical woman means standing up like Esther, setting boundaries like Vashti, leading like Deborah, prophesying like Miriam, teaching like Priscilla, or even winning battles like Jael? Christmas is coming and I've got some amazing Be a Biblical Woman merch in our store. It makes a statement. I got mugs, coffee thermoses, t-shirts, notebooks, everything. I've got you covered and they make great inexpensive gifts and stocking stuffers for your friends, your family, your coworkers, even your church. So check out our merch at the Bear Marriage Store and spread a new message about biblical womanhood this Christmas. Okay. Yeah. So we've got this situation... That is no bueno. Yes. No good. good. The couple doesn't want to be stuck here, right? We want to get to recovery, Mm -hmm. but we've got this learned helplessness, right? The bell rings and we panic, whatever that may look like for you. Like, how do you get... And and, and I think what a lot of women want to know and what a lot of men want to know too is like, how do we get to the other side? Yep. How do you get to the safe place? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that what this really comes down to, and we've already said this before, is you got to have the zap. The zap has to stop happening. Mm -hmm. What this really comes down to is that the zap has to stop. And I want to say too, let's take the the example of the relationships, not where he is actually like raping her or doing something bad. Maybe it's just that she does an orgasm. Or let's talk about the ones where there's just that sex Sex is just another thing on her to-do list where she's overwhelmed and it makes her feel frustrated and bitter and used. Yeah. No, but let's let's even do the no orgasm first okay, one. Sure. Let's do the no orgasm first one. Okay. Let's say that she's just not orgasming. Remember that 
every time mm-hmm. you have sex that she doesn't orgasm, you're reinforcing it. That is the bell and the zap. That is it. And, you know, does that mean that you can never have sex again if she doesn't reach orgasm? Well, maybe you need to take intercourse and his orgasm completely off the table for a couple of months and just work on hers. Yeah, I'm going to be honest. There's a lot of couples who message us on our comments where it's like, we've been married for 17 years. She's never orgasmed. And now I want to make her feel good during sex and she won't let me. And I'm like, well, buddy, you've been feeling good for 17 years. Maybe you wait. Yeah. And the reason <laughs> the reason that she doesn't want to help let, let you is because she, first of all, she just wants sex. Learn to be hopelessness. With, it's learned hopelessness. It's learned hopelessness. And she just wants sex to be over with as fast as possible. Yes. She's learned helplessness, says this sex is going to happen no matter what. Yeah. Learned hopelessness says it's not going to be good for me. And so when he comes in and says, by the way, let's spend an hour on foreplay. That's a threat. Yeah. Because yeah. Like, we have a helplessness, hopelessness mindset. I say, hey, I want to make this good for you. It's like, great. There's yet another bit of pressure on this for me now mm-hmm. because this isn't a good thing for her. Mm-hmm. And I, when we talk about removing the negative or aversive stimuli, that's what yeah. we call them, aversive stimuli. Mm-hmm. That's the bad thing, the zap. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. What that means is it has to stop happening. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really that simple. Okay. Yeah. Like if you are having sex with someone and sex is painful. Do not have sex when it is painful. Yeah. This is an, like when, when you go to see a pelvic physiotherapist, uh, at least when I went to see a pelvic physiotherapist for vaginismus that was trauma-induced from my labor and delivery, she very much was very clear. If you have sex when it hurts, you will make it worse. Yeah. She told us that. Mm-hmm. She was like, if you have sex when it hurts, it, you will make it worse. Do not do that. Mm-hmm. Right? It was, it was great advice. You know, fantastic. Because we are people who can be conditioned. Yes. The zap is bad. The zap don't is bad. do the zap. Do not. Whatever the zap is, <sighs> don't do it. Yes. And you might freak out being like, but that's just sex. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Is it bad? Yeah. Then don't do it. Yeah, because if you've been having sex for 17 years and she's never had an orgasm, it means he's had 17 years of orgasm. Yeah, and she's had none. So it's not so bad to say, you know what, we need to take three months and take sex off the table to work on her. And that doesn't mean you take sex off the table so that, okay, honey, now I'm not going to have an orgasm, but every night we're going to try to bring you to orgasm (laughs) because that is still threatening to her. Like you may need to take everything off the table for a while just for her to calm down, to have that fight, flight, and freeze response, you know, (laughs) go away. You need to work on the intimacy, to let her know that you're still going to love her even without sex, and to let her know that you care about her response. And then, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then, you know, she may be um, open and she may get over some of this learned hopelessness, helplessness, so that yep. you can work on her response too. And let's be really clear. I think we may have already said this, but as we're talking about the practical, I do want to say again, learned helplessness and learned hopelessness is not the problem of the person who learned it. Mm-hmm. That is because the environment was so aversive to them, they had no choice. It was not the dog's fault. No. The researchers zapped them. Exactly. Yeah. So let's be clear here. If we're saying your wife has learned helplessness, like, oh, why did she learn helplessness? No, No. it's why have, why is she in a situation Mm -hmm. where she feels that life is hopeless in this area? So when you're looking for practical ways to move forward, the first question is what is the zap? Mm -hmm. Because for some women, it's going to be sex in general and Mm -hmm. sex has to be off the table. Her pleasure, his pleasure, anything. Like Mm -hmm. for the next three months, you don't have genitals. Like it does not exist. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) For other women, it might just be the obligations side of it. We had lots of women in focus groups where the thing that they needed was just for their husbands to say, well, why don't you just initiate then? 
I yeah. just won't initiate anymore. We'll have sex whenever you want. And the pressure was totally lifted and that was enough for them. Now, other women are in the opposite situation where their husbands tell them you need to initiate. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so for some people, it's like, like it just depends what the zap exactly. is. Because it looks different. So we're not telling you what your zap is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're just saying whatever is the thing that makes you feel bad yeah you know maybe the idea of not having sex feels bad for you but you'd really like to have some selfish sex for once to kind of be able to enjoy it again because frankly he's been having selfish sex for nine years right like that might be the thing that you guys have to do it's gonna be totally up to you and your relationship but what you have to be focusing on is what's the warning bell that i'm reacting to and Mm -hmm. what's the negative association and how can i separate those two things out so this perfectly normal warning bell that is not actually a problem like hugging like kissing like Mm -hmm. date night suggestions Mm -hmm. like initiating sex yeah you know doesn't lead to this fear response this this Mm -hmm. um hopelessness this helplessness and i do want to say too you know we said that that learned helplessness and hopelessness isn't the person who has it it's not Mm -hmm. on them it isn't always completely on the spouse either and part of the big reason for our research project on the great sex rescue was to show that often the evangelical church has primed us for this stuff the problem is that often we've adopted ways of behaving in the bedroom which then reinforce Reinforce it it. yeah is that the husband doesn't realize that he is the one pushing the trigger for this app exactly because he was told it's the pleasure button yeah (laughs) (laughs) yes genuinely that's kind of what it is right yes exactly yeah we had one woman in our focus groups who was talking about how she was she experienced crippling shame around sexuality as well that her husband genuinely had nothing to do with it was it was very much purity culture very much that kind of stuff and for her her husband actually didn't have anything to do with her healing journey Mm -hmm. for her it was actually just going through and really searching what god had to say about sexuality and realizing that sex and orgasm was actually kind of like a god-sanctioned version of ecstasy that like you're Mm -hmm. allowed to have right um and and for her like realizing that you know sexuality in the bible is not the very like kind of frankly the the g-rated kind mm-hmm. of sunday school spiritual intimacy with your partner will make you one as christ and the lord are one <laughs> like when she realized that sex in the bible is not all about intimacy and yeah. you can't use any other word for it because we're embarrassed about it but it's actually quite an erotic thing mm-hmm. she was able to overcome a lot of her self-consciousness so the, sometimes the the healing journey you have to go through is going to be individual yeah, and with but but that doesn't mean you caused it, no. and sometimes it means that you need to go through something with God, yeah. you know, with your faith, etc. So that's mm-hmm. why we we want to give some practical advice, but we can't give specifics because, because everyone's different. We all have different triggers that make us think that zap is about to come, mm-hmm. right? And we mm-hmm. all we all find different things aversive. So if this is a problem for for your marriage, I mean, based on these experiments (laughs) and just basic learning principles, I love learning principles. They are my favorite courses Mm -hmm. of all time. Mm -hmm. It's it's going back and figuring out what exactly is the thing that is giving me a negative response. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's go back to the example of a woman who realizes she hates kissing. Okay. So she's like, man, like we've been married for five years and I hate kissing now. Well, and she realizes that kissing just makes her feel on edge because like, oh, maybe he's going to ask for it or, mm-hmm. you know, she t- you tends to be more romantic when you want sex. And so it becomes a little bit of a trigger for like, we're going to have sex that I'm going to feel exhausted through and it's going to do nothing for me. And she and him decide that, okay, so we're going to stop having bad sex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Frankly, um, we're going to stop having bad sex for a while and we're going to really work on romance separate from sex. Mm-hmm. 
So first of all, what we're going to do is take literally everything off the table. No bell, no zap. So no kissing and no sex, okay. right? And then they decide to put kissing back in and well, they know that no sex is going to happen. So first of all, she's been proven that no sex is happening no matter what. And now it's like, now let's be affectionate again. And mm-hmm. let's start to cuddle and we'll hold hands while we're on walks and we'll do all these different things and no sex is happening. And there's no repercussions for having no sex. Right. We're not mm-hmm. adding a new zap. Right. We're not saying, well, I kissed you and held your hand and didn't have sex, so why can't you give me a back rub? No. Like, this is just... Yes. This is just positive. Yeah. No zaps. Yes. And then eventually you can start to really enjoy kissing again because you know that the negatives are not coming, mm-hmm. you know, and then you can work on, you know, sex should not be a negative, mm-hmm. you know, but it's really hard to work on making sex good if touching is a problem. Yep. And so that's why we sometimes have to just move way back mm-hmm. and recognize where is the conditioning taking place And how can we undo that by proving, not with words, not with intentions, not with just good beliefs, but proving with actions that my spouse is safe. Yep. Yep. And that's what it looks like to rebuild safety because so many of us have just got this learned hopelessness. Mm -hmm. Things will never get better. I will never enjoy sex. My marriage will always feel terrible. Mm -hmm. You know, I am, I, my body is broken and those are really hard mental things, mental spirals to get out of if things in your life keep confirming them. Mm-hmm. And so we have to back the truck up. And I think it can be a profound show of love to your spouse to be willing to do the hard work mm-hmm. to carry them over into safety. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We have an interview that I want to play now with the counselor because a lot of people, the zap that they've experienced is a spouse's porn use Mm. or sexual sin in some way. Uh And what do you do when that's the zap? Yeah. And how do you rebuild there? So I want to hear this. um, Sam is is a licensed counselor who deals a lot with with, uh, sexual addictions and sexual sin. And let's just hear what he has to say as he counsels couples. So I am so pleased to bring on the podcast today, Sam Tielemans, who is from Las Vegas, where he is a marriage and family therapist helping couples deal with porn and its aftermath. So thank you, Sam, for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this. I've been looking forward to spending some time with you. Absolutely. You know, um, one of the big things we've been talking about on the blog recently is, and this is why I wanted to have you on, is this problem where often in Christian circles, we're told that we're supposed to forgive and trust and do all this work of reconciliation. But sometimes that is is portrayed as like the first step rather than how to rebuild trust in the relationship and what what that real repentance needs to look like. So I was hoping that you could just tell us how you take couples through this and and what you're looking for in whether or not a man or a woman is addicted to porn, whichever, but whether they're actually serious about recovery. Yeah, I think it's a great question. So one of the first things that I do when I work with couples is understand if they're both on the same page. What I mean by that is like in terms of their goal, because sometimes if a wife comes in and says, there's too much damage, I don't want to work on this. But the husband says, I'll do whatever I can. But she's like, no, I'm like, mm-hmm. if there's, if they're misaligned in their goals, then it's, there's a conflict there. And the same thing is true for the opposite. If the husband doesn't really think it's a big deal and the wife does, there's just a different, a different path, 
right? Because you can't make him do anything. Right. But for the couples who are on the same page and want to heal, but they just don't know how and they don't know what to look for. The first thing that I like to do is try to better understand why it happened. Because if you don't have a better understanding of why somebody struggles with pornography or any other like coping mechanism, if you don't know why, I guess let me speak to that a little bit. When I work with people who are struggling with addiction, it's because they're coping with pain. It's an escape for them. Mm-hmm. Some people choose food. Some people choose alcohol. Some people choose pornography. Like there's so many different ways for us to cope as people. And for people who are exposed early when they're young, it often becomes, well, it, it, that can become an easy choice for them because yeah. it just helps them get away from whatever's happening emotionally at the time. And then it just becomes a habit. Then it becomes something that's ingrained. And so the first thing is to better understand why it's happening. What are they escaping from? What are they struggling with? And once we can identify that, then you can actually deal with the issue because it's not because, you know, sometimes there's some misunderstandings with pornography and sexual addiction. It's not because the husband's not getting enough sex at home. That's why he's turning somewhere else. Like it has nothing to do with that. Sex Mm -hmm. has become an outlet or an escape. It's a, it's a mechanism that he's using to cope. And so we have to better Mm -hmm. understand first what that is. And then once you do, then you're tailoring your time towards addressing that issue. Because once you do the behavior almost takes care of itself. There's things that you can do to help with that. But in terms of eliminating the addiction, like we have to understand the core of it. And in terms of being able to uh, rebuild trust in the marriage, the wife needs to understand what happened and why, or else, you know, she's afraid the shoe's going to drop, the other shoe's going to drop, and she's not going to be able to protect herself. So that's always where I like to start with couples. Right. Now I'm, I'm curious what you said about how, like, if they're not on the same page, like if a wife feels like she just can't, like the, the pain is too much, even then this is still a worthwhile thing to go through with the guy, right? For like sure. it might not 100%. be, it might not be oh, to yeah. restore the marriage. Yeah. I, I agree with that hundred percent because whether or not the wife says I can do this most of the time when I'm working with people, they both want the change. They both want him to overcome this. And sometimes I work with people where the wife says, I need you to get better. Like I'm not in a place to work on the relationship. I don't want to heal right now. I'm too hurt. I'm too, too much in pain. There's no trust. Like you have to figure this out. So then, yes, I'll work with the husband to then help him work through this, to then build the bridge, to start to repair the relationship. But yeah, either way, it's so important for the husband to get the help if he's the one that's struggling. Right. And how, okay. So if you're that wife (laughs) and, you know, let's say you've married for 15 years and you found out on year four that he used porn and he swore he'd stop. And then you find out on year seven, when you're pregnant with your second kid, that he's using it again. And he swore he'd stop. And now this has happened like four times. And how do you know this time's going to be different? Like, what are the signs that she can look for that he's serious this time? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it goes back to the one, at least in part, we need to understand why it's happening. Because if he's mm-hmm. just like, I don't know, like, I promise I'll stop. There's no new variable in that. In other words, his commitment isn't enough. Right. Because if it was, it wouldn't be an issue. He could just realize, oh, this doesn't work in my marriage. I need to stop. And then he does. But for the yeah. people who go back to it, it's not because they're not committed. And I think that's a part of what is so tricky about all this. If I've, I've had, I don't know how many conversations with people where the wife says, you knew that this hurt me. You knew this was a problem and you did it again. Mm-hmm. And on its face, I'm, I'm like, of course, like I, it makes perfect sense why she would say that if they had a very clear conversation and he goes back to it, it's like, well, she interprets that as he must not care. Yeah. But in reality, it's not about not caring. It's he doesn't have the tools to sustain 
the decision of not going back. It's mm-hmm. too, he gets wrapped up back into these old patterns. And if you don't address why he's there, it doesn't matter how fervently he commits without the tools to create a new pathway, it's not going to work. So like I said, in terms of like first steps, he's got to understand why it's happening. And then number two, she has to see him taking steps towards those things, whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. And, and, ter- and we can talk more specifics about that. If yeah. You like. like what are, what are some examples of, of the steps that she would be able to identify that? Okay. Yeah. Maybe something is actually happening here. Yeah. So one of the biggest reasons why somebody struggles with an addiction is uh, there's a couple of them. Number one, they have these negative beliefs about themselves, like it's self-esteem issues, self-worth mm-hmm. issues. They feel like they're unworthy. They feel like they're flawed. It's like shame, basically. It's like being mm-hmm. so hard on yourself. And when you feel like an unworthy person, there's so much weight with that. Like that's such a heavy negative place to be. And when somebody struggles with addiction, that's often a big part of what drives that. They just feel so bad about themselves that they find some outlet to deal with the pain that they feel, mm-hmm. which unintentionally, it's like, again, looking at it from the outside, it's like, okay, so you're feeling bad about yourself. And then you turn to a behavior that's going to cause you to feel worse about yourself and then destroy your marriage. Like it's so hard sometimes for people to wrap their mind around that. And that's why it's kind of like, it's not rational, right? It isn't logical. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense on the surface, but once you understand it's him coping from those negative beliefs about himself, a part of what he then must do is address those things and take steps towards helping resolve that conflict of feeling unworthy, feeling broken and becoming more whole, feeling better about himself, improving that self-esteem. And if the wife is seeing him take steps to address those things, that's an indicator for her like, oh, that's different. It didn't used to be like that. So that's number one. Another Mm -hmm. one that comes to mind is uh, so often men who do this just compartmentalize everything and they don't really know how to connect with their wife on an emotional level. And as a result of that disconnection, I've heard this phrase multiple times, the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. And so often people compartmentalize and they live isolated internally and they're not open and vulnerable and they don't really tap into their own pain, much less their spouses, and really have conversations that bring them together. So the other part of that is helping them know how to build a connection with his wife in a way that maybe has never been there. Mm -hmm. And when she starts to feel more and more connected and safe and seen and loved by him, those are again, very clear markers like, oh, this is different. He never used to tell me about this. He never used to share with me his fears or his stressors or when he was feeling sad, but we're connecting in a new way. So like, these are new variables that didn't used to be there, which is again, evidence of like, well, maybe I can start to trust because he's showing up differently now. Right. Cause I think that's one of the big, like if you're, if you're married to a master manipulator or, you know, someone with real narcissistic tendencies or something, they're not going to be able to emotionally connect. Right. Like, you know, they, you, you can hide and you can pretend a whole lot of things, but you can't actually become vulnerable with your wife. Yeah. Much less in, cause I think a lot of couples have moments, right? It's not that all is bad. And it's Mm -hmm. not that the whole marriage has like been awful. Sometimes that's the case, but most of the time, that's not the case. Most of the time there are moments, but you cannot sustain that. If you are manipulating and hiding and lying, compartmentalizing, you can just Mm -hmm. feel that. Like I've had so many women tell me they just knew something was off. But then when the discovery came out, when it was either 
disclosed or more Mm -hmm. often caught she's like this is what's been wrong the entire time i just knew something was wrong because she could sense that and the same is true when you have that connection you can also sense that too you can feel like this is real because you can't fake that so you can really get a sense like he's with me right now in a way that he hadn't been in the past right so in your in your practice i mean like how often do people honestly get over this versus how often do the guys just keep relapsing? And maybe that's too simplistic a question. You can't pull a number out of your head, but do you see both things happening? I do. And those who really get the tools to deal with it, they overcome it and they find freedom. And I think there's a couple of different ways to do it. Again, there's like a, a more traditional approach, which is like the 12 step it's accountability partner software on your phone, like all of those things. And I think that approach, I haven't really seen help get to the core of why somebody's struggling. It's more like Mm -hmm. surveillance and accountability. And like, you're kind of, I don't know, like almost locked down where it's like, it's not like this sense of freedom of, oh, it's not a part of my life anymore. It's like, oh no, this thing is here and it's always going to be here. I just have to like maintain it. Right. And I think a lot of people get caught in that kind of a, an approach where it's just, it's maintenance and it's not truly like working through it. And so when I work with guys who are struggling with this, I like to take a different approach where we're really resolving the core of the issue, like we've talked about mm-hmm. and helping them find that freedom so that then it doesn't even like, I'll work with people. I'm working with somebody right now who, uh, so I work with people doing a 12 week program. We're halfway through. And he started off saying, I don't allow myself to have Wi-Fi because I don't trust myself. My mm-hmm. wife doesn't trust me. I'm not ready for that. So we're about halfway through now. And we've done some good processing to help him resolve the core of why he's been struggling. He calls me yesterday. He's like, hey, uh, can I can I talk to you for a second? And then so he calls me and he's like, this is a good call, by the way. Like, you don't have to be afraid of anything. But like, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm in a place where I can get Wi-Fi now. And so he's had his wife turn the Wi-Fi on because he wanted to watch a show. And then he turned it off when he was done. And he's starting to feel a sense of freedom that he didn't used to have, which can only really happen when you deal with the issue. Because once you solve it, it doesn't mm-hmm. have to follow you around forever. Like people truly do overcome this. And if you get the right tools and are actually dealing with the core of it, it's not something that just is in the back of your mind all the time that you have to fend off. Like you truly right. just step away from it. It's not a part of your life anymore. So yeah, it's, there's totally hope for people who are struggling with this. Right. And what if if a guy is going to keep relapsing and not really doing the work, what are the signs other than that they won't emotionally connect? Are there certain signs that you see? Or Yeah. I mean, I think people who continually relapse, it's, an, it's, it's one of two things. Number one, well, I guess it depends on who we're talking about. If they're committed and they're trying, It's Mm -hmm. just an indicator if they're continuing to relapse that they're not quite at the core. They're not quite there. They have not resolved something, whether it's some internal emotional, like not being able to cope with emotion in a healthy way or having some of these negative beliefs or fears or, Mm -hmm. you know, their identity is like, well, I'm an addict. Therefore, at some point I'm going to struggle. Like that's another really limiting belief that people have. Yeah working through all of those things. So if there are still continual relapses, there's just something not quite there yet. Like there's a puzzle piece that's missing that once is there. Like, mm-hmm. okay, I'll go back to the example of the guy that I was working with uh, just a couple of days ago when he called me. He's like, I kept giving myself permission that, you know, this is something I'm going to struggle with. Cause he had been struggling for like a decade. He's like, well, this is just a part of my life. So he just gave himself this permission to like slip. 
But then we did some processing to help him eliminate those excuses and see them for what they were. They were just like, they were just excuses that he gave himself. And after those shifts, like that was one of the pieces for him that helped was not allowing himself, not tolerating. Well, it's just one more time. Or, ah, like I already slipped. I might as well go a little further or whatever he'd rationalize. He just decided he's like, I'm not going to do that anymore. And on top of the other work that he did, he, he was able to step away from that. And so it's either something is missing or they haven't quite dealt with the cause of it or whatever is the next step that's out of place. Mm-hmm. And do you ever see like people who just, they're paying lip service to recovery, but they're not really invested in it. And they're still, you know, blaming their spouse or externalizing all the the reasons. Yeah, for sure. I think that's really common. And I think uh, when people are in that place, I'll I'll share with you another example. I remember working at a clinic. So I'm in Las Vegas and uh, Salt Lake City is about seven hours from us. Mm -hmm. I started working at a clinic. We uh, opened up and we're doing this special is like free assessment. I don't know, whatever the, the, the director is like free assessment for, you know, opening up for this month. Somebody drove from Salt Lake down for the free assessment and husband and wife are there in the room and the hut and the wife says like one of the first thing this is like these some of these cases like you never forget right the wife says my husband doesn't really care and he doesn't doesn't really want to overcome this and i said okay well you guys drove quite a ways to tell me that he's not interested and so i turned to him and i'm like so what where are you with this like what do you what are your thoughts on this and he's like yeah i just like i'm struggling with this i don't think this is going to be out of my life i don't really know if this is that big of a problem Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, well, we have 50 minutes. Like, why don't we just talk through this? Like, you know, and they're going to go back to Salt Lake. I'll never see him again. <laughs> and so I started to ask questions to better understand, like, what's the reason why he turns to it? What's going on in his life? Like, why, why do you, does he think he's struggling? After about 10 or 15 minutes, like he's like crying. Mm-hmm. And he tells me that pornography has been a coping mechanism in his life for his entire life. And he had been depressed for years. And if it wasn't for this, he probably would have committed suicide because he had no way to deal with his pain other than just numbing out Mm -hmm. and watching the stuff online. And so he said, it's not that I don't want to get rid of this. He's just, I'm terrified that if I do, I don't know where I'll be as a person. Like, I don't know if my depression is going to come back. I don't know what that would mean for me. And so I'm just scared that Mm -hmm. if I get rid of it, then who knows what's going to happen. And that's so different than it's not that big of a deal. And I don't really care. And she's over-exaggerating and this is her fault. And everybody does it. Like that's a night and day difference on Mm -hmm. the experience of the husband. And most of the time, the husband's not going to get into that deep, you know, those deep fears because they're so well defended and protected that they then just put it off and like, no, like you're the one who's overreacting wife. This isn't that big of a deal. And whatever else he says, like the defensiveness Mm -hmm. is there. So if you can get underneath that and really uncover why somebody's in that like protected, defended posture, it'll totally change how you see it. And like that session, that's what happened for the wife, like him Mm -hmm. in his tears, sharing how afraid he was of what might happen without his crutch completely changed how she saw him. Now you have so much to work with, right? Now it's not like, I don't care. And this is wife's fault. There's so much you can do now for both people 
to really have a pathway forward to healing. And so, yeah, I think most of the time people present their defenses when really there's so much more going on underneath that. That's interesting. Um, what what would you or how do you counsel couples when she just feels really betrayed and isn't sure, you know, even if he does do all of this good work, how how can how can she get over the betrayal? Like how do you how do you help him help her get over the betrayal? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's <clears throat> very often where women feel so stuck is they're so hurt by this. Uh, a part of why it hurts so much is of course, because it's like for most couples, that's such a, an important sacred part of the marriage. Mm -hmm. And if he turns outside of the marriage, there's betrayal there because that is supposed to be reserved for just them two. And so often what happens is when husband turns outside, and by the way, as a quick little sidebar, this goes both ways. I keep saying husband, but this is both, right? I'm just like shorthanding it, right? Yes. Yes. So wives struggle with this too. But just for shorthand, so the husband, if he turns outside of the marriage, it not only breaks that bond, but number two, it can either create or amplify her own insecurities of not being enough, not being attractive, not being beautiful, not being sexy. Like it really causes a lot of damage on that level too. And so a part of what helps when healing this is addressing the core wounds inside of her if she got the message, well, my husband did this because he doesn't care, then we know that the opposite must be addressed. We must make mm -hmm. sure that he can communicate how much he really does care. If mm -hmm. she took the message, I'm not enough for him, so he turned away. Then again, the part of the treatment is making sure that she feels reassurance and resolve that it really had nothing to do with her the whole time, but that he was struggling with his own stuff and she is enough for him and that he accepts her. Mm-hmm. So wherever she's feeling hurt, so often when people can't get past it is because those hurts are not being addressed. They're just being brushed over. And it's like, well, he's doing better. He hasn't slipped in six months. Wife, why are you still upset? Uh, shouldn't you forgive him by now? Like if she gets those messages, it's like, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I think in these like images and analogies, imagine like you're crossing a fence and then your sweater gets hooked on a chain link fence. You can keep walking, but unless you go back and unhook where you got stuck, things just keep like unraveling. And I think the same mm -hmm. is true with this. If her pain is not addressed and her insecurities or fears aren't really resolved, she's going to just stay stuck there because you can't just forget about this. So I think that's one big part that helps couples heal. Right. Okay. So I have so many couples. This is probably the number one thing people ask me about um, who really need counseling in this area. What are, what are some red flags? Like if they're going to see a counselor do you have any suggestions on how to identify when this counselor is not really going to be able to help you when it's about porn? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think if you're getting any of those messages of, oh man, there's a handful of things we can say. <laughs> uh, um, if the wife feels blamed in any way, it's not going to be a good fit mm -hmm. because there has to be like a, a, a this is such a, nuanced, complicated issue, right? And so there's so many moving parts that you have to understand. And so if the therapist just, again, doesn't understand addiction and doesn't understand what drives it and why husband is struggling with it or wife again, then they're going to give advice that is going to be so misapplied in your relationship. Mm -hmm. So it's not, so if you're hearing advice, like, you know, just go on more dates, spend more time, have sex more, 
uh, wife, this isn't that big of a deal. Like that, that happens for a lot of couples when they go in, they hear that type of messaging. So if you're hearing that, then you just know they're not trained. It's not mean that it doesn't mean they're a terrible therapist. It just means like they don't have the skill set to deal with this complexity because they just haven't been trained in it. Mm-hmm. So knowing that if you're feeling blamed or, or any pressure, then it's probably not going to be the right fit. That's probably one of the biggest indicators. And then number two, if they're not actively addressing, if you start and it's like, okay, no, it feels pretty good. And they're, he's understanding us both. If they're not making sure that he, the husband's actively addressing the core of the addiction, if it's more like maintenance and surveillance type of stuff. And like, again, accountability, not that there's anything wrong with that, but that doesn't heal the core of it. So if it just doesn't feel like those core things about self-esteem, core beliefs, uh, connection, learning how to com- like not compartmentalize, like then you might not be getting deep enough. So there's a couple little signals. Perfect. Well, Sam, I really appreciate you uh, you coming on here and helping us out with this. Where can people find you? Yeah, sure. Thank you for having me. It's like, I, I think this is a, an issue that affects a lot of people. So I appreciate the work that you're mm-hmm. doing. And I know that you have a book about, you know, you said the great sex rescue and there's so many tools that you're providing, which is so phenomenal. Cause I know that a lot of people are struggling and they feel alone in this. So yeah. I think it's great. You're offering resources for people who are struggling too. In terms of, uh, I have a, a website called coupleshealing.org where I've got a couples course that's free. I've got a podcast for couples and individuals who are struggling with this that you can find some information on the website, but all of it's there on that website. I will put a link to your website in in the podcast notes so people can find you. And I really appreciate this. We'll have to have you back on to talk about some other big counseling thing. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Sam. So what I get from that Mm -hmm. is that, you know, as, as we're looking at this whole problem of sexual sin, we have two competing issues. Yeah. One is you certainly don't want to be in a situation where your spouse is honestly changing and is honestly doing the hard work and is really getting real and understanding, you know, that they've hurt you and understanding the root of the problem, but you're stuck and learned hopelessness and helplessness. So if your spouse is doing the work, you know, we, we do want to acknowledge that, hopefully, if you're able to, right? But then the other danger is your spouse isn't doing the work and your church and your spouse and your family is all saying, well, you're being unchristian by not forgiving. Mm-hmm. And so we need, there's that balance, right? Because you, yeah. you can make a mistake on both ends, yeah. <laughs> where the first is you don't, you know, you, you let yourself stay stuck. And that's, that's really hard not to stay stuck. Yeah. And I also think that the other thing is, of course, there's a whole other category um, of situations with porn users going mm-hmm. on here, which is often it crosses over to sexual assault. Yes. Um, or sexual coercion or anything where your autonomy has been taken away from you. Mm-hmm. Um, and often it doesn't even matter if they've done the work and they're going to change. Sometimes things are just... There is, there is damage that has been done and yep. a man reaps what he sows. Yep. And it's great that he's done the work. It's yep. great he's changing, but that doesn't necessarily mean your, your relationship yep. can be restored. And that's just, that's just a, a fact, mm-hmm. you know, and we need to, we need to give people um, permission to say, I'm just too traumatized and yep. this is too much and I can thrive better, you know, somewhere else without, without this relationship. So, so, you know, we, we, we need to acknowledge that. Um, but we also need to acknowledge that there can be a problem where, uh, you don't see that he really isn't changing <laughs> and you listen, you listen to all the nice words mm-hmm. um, where he, when he hasn't done the work. And so, you know, that's where I think being with a counselor who's good at this stuff 
and who can help you see whether a person is really changing or not. And and if you're with a counselor (laughs) who is all about you need to forgive them, yeah, that's not safe. You need to be with someone who can really take your spouse through the journey and hold their feet to the fire. Yep. Yeah. So that's good. So there you go. There is our talk on learned helplessness and hopelessness. Don't ever try this at home with your dogs. Please don't. <laughs> I'm so glad universities are no longer doing it. Oh my goodness. But but it's a really it's a really neat concept. Go check out the video with the kids and the anagrams. Super fun. And we will have links to Sam's uh, practice. We will have links to all of these experiments in the podcast notes. And please check out our series on uh, the four steps to recovery that happened on the blog this month because there's there's so much more there and uh, hopefully it can help you as you try to figure out you know if we can dig out of this pit so thank you for joining us on fair marriage (laughs) and we will see you again next week bye-bye bye